1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hi, friends. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Rev Covery, a podcast for folks who are either transitioning out of ministry, changing the way they've uh, done ministry, or maybe you're a volunteer or someone who is involved in a Christian community, or just someone who is involved in some sort of organization or something that gave them meaning and purpose, and your relationship to that has changed. It is really a podcast about overcoming um, these transitions in life. And so today we have an incredible guest. This is Reverend Hillary Taylor. Reverend Taylor uh, is someone who has knows all about transition. I hope that you'll hear in their story um, this great um, passion for people and for wanting to care and being very earnest about that while going through their own faith shift or deconstruction finding this real purpose and meaning and identity around anti-death penalty work is very inspiring. And so we hope that you'll hear this story no matter how you feel. I do want to give you a little bit of trauma activation. I know the death penalty is something that a lot of people have strong feelings about. Um, So I hope you'll hear Hillary out and I hope that you'll enjoy this profoundly inspiring story. So thanks again for joining us. Welcome to another episode of Recovery, a podcast that I have heard some feedback. Apparently, the way I describe it is super vague, but it is a little bit of a vague notion. It's a podcast for folks who are maybe transitioning in the work that they do, whether that's in the church, for the church, about the church, uh, or maybe they are transitioning with no church work. Maybe they're transitioning their faith. So it's kind of a podcast about recovery of something. I guess that's still vague, huh? Anyway, I'm Sarah Heath, and this is the fantastic... (laughs) <laughs> it is the fantastic Justin Gentry. Um, yeah, it is a vague notion, uh, but we're leaving a thing. Uh, usually we talk about leaving ministry, but sometimes it's leaving other things or transitioning or becoming whatever it is that you're going to be. You're recovering from the thing. You're rec- whatever. Yeah, I guess that is vague, but they said they like the vagueness, but then I got self-conscious. So that this is, this is me making it worse. <laughs> yeah, we're... I think the more we talk, the more vague it becomes. Mm, um, yes, which makes sense because we were we were pastors. So yeah, um, we need about kind fifteen of to minutes to really work on this. <laughs> just really make this vague. And we were also we became pastors in the like Rob Bell era, yeah. where you like take a sentence and you make that sentence an entire chapter the whole thing. of your book. Yeah. So sorry, Rob, if you're listening, uh, we appreciate it. But Rob, also, brevity is the soul of wit, my man. Yeah, he's um, great. Well, we're at it. Should we introduce our incredible guest today, uh, Hillary Taylor, someone I have met in real life at Wild Goose and someone who has a, an incredible story. So Hillary, you know, you know the deal. Our question is this always, how long were you in and what were you in for? That is so big and vague. I mean, you brought up rob bell just now and so i feel like like (laughs) at age 13 like that that was that was the start of everything and i'm 33 now so i know that's not old for some of you who are out there listening but it's it's long enough ouch yeah um but yeah (laughs) you know the um i was somebody who got a call to ministry at age 13 and like a lot of people i found the church as a place for healing and stability it was a place where I could um, know that I was always loved and accepted. My family history is is a long and winding one. Um, I have, you know, loving parents, and I also have moments where things were very bad and very terrible, um, which we will not be able to get into on this podcast. But there's some mm-hmm. family trauma <laughs> that I have, 
And basically what happened is Shandon United Methodist Church in Columbia, South Carolina became this place where my family and I could simply exist and figure out how to, you know, put ourselves back together, uh, but not alone because we had people who surrounded us and allowed us that space and said, we love you and we're here for you. And we will be here for you, you know, until you can internalize it for yourself if you're having a problem doing that for yourself, which I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I love that. Something I really gravitated to was mission projects. And so we'll we'll get into that in a little bit, but I loved these construction-based mission projects in South Carolina that is particular to the South Carolina United Methodist Conference. It's called Salkahatchee Summer Service and it's basically a copycat of the Appalachian Service Project and other other organizations like it, where it's a week-long construction-based mission project that includes devotions, includes relationships with homeowners. And that was just sort of this way to practice being in community with people that were total strangers at the beginning of the week and became really good, lifelong, intimate friends at the end of the week. And it's the weeping. Yeah, the weeping. The weeping. The I, yes. I worked for Youth Works and I, I knew I was getting old because here's what would happen. The kids would like lose their mind knowing that they're, they weren't going to see their friends again. And I was like, no, 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 no. When Justin and I were going to summer camp, if we said goodbye to our friends, the only way we could talk to them, am I wrong, Justin, was to call their home and risk the potential of talking to their parents. Or mm-hmm. we would write them actual letters because camp for us was not in the time of even AIM, right? I mean, no, I mean, it was, it was around. It was around, um, but like it but... wasn't regularly used. When you when you would use dot when you would get to the, go to the internet it would scream at you yeah. for a good minute and then if someone yeah. was on ooh yeah Hillary it it's such a profound thing to me that I think what's fascinating is so like us saying goodbye to people was like we really might not see you for a while but these kids are you're like seeing each other's Instagrams but there's still something so meaningful that they still hate saying goodbye to each other because there's something that's magical that happens in that week that they intuitively know will happen nowhere else. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And um, yeah, no, I I completely agree with all of that. It was, oh man, uh, getting tears thinking about it. Yeah. uh, You know, real life, like, you know, you're a a nerd or you're not, you know, you you don't have your own confidence, right? But you take somebody and put them in a different circumstance and you say, practice hospitality and practice community, no expectations, but see what you can do. And that was really this breakaway from a place that, you know, home is full of these bad memories and this trauma and, you know, these things that feel so insurmountable that I can't push back on because I feel so alone and depressed and isolated. But take me out of that place and I can I can feel God and I feel closer to fine, to quote the lovely Indigo Girls, because I've also seen Barbie, the movie, <laughs> like many yeah. of you have probably. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so these construction-based mission projects were a way for me to work on myself even as I was working on the homes of others, rebuilding my own sense of self, even as I was rebuilding the homes of other people. And that really was kind of how it all began. It, it catapulted me into campus ministry and lots of different leadership roles in my uh, university life. I went to Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, which is full of very active campus ministry humans. Fantastic. I, I, I know. I yeah, know if you all the time, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I never and, thought and about Furman. it. It is FU. It's FU. Remind. Yep. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I waited tables at the Sticky Fingers in downtown oh, Greenville wow. for six or eight Man. months. Oh, I have so. so many questions for you that I'll have to uh, uh, that I'll have to ask after this. But uh, yeah. you you knew the. Um, am I allowed to say like the the cheer the Furman cheer? I don't know how crass can I be on this podcast. Yeah. You- you can Remember be as crass you as you would like. The rules where you can cuss as much as you want. Okay, Those gotcha. are the rules. All right, cool. So this is this is public information. So I'm not, and I'm not actually cursing, but I am uh, insinuating. the 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 cheer is f you one time, f you two times, f you three times, f you all the time. No kidding. <laughs> and the president of the university, uh, I think, depending on which president, has led the cheer itself. So fun times. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Guys, I I love a pun. 
I love a dirty insinuation. I love any time they like take a, a something that's supposed to be one thing and turn it into something else. That's great. Yeah. So you went to Furman full of just like, I'm going to, I'm going to help the world. I got hammers. I got a smile. I got the ability to like welcome in the nerd kid. Here I am. And did you know you wanted to go into ministry at Furman? I did. And and then I, I did a study away. Uh, shout out to my professors, Christy Mahar and Aaron Hahn. Uh, and there were some other ones, but those are the two main uh, coordinators for this. And we went to Southern Africa, so th- South Africa, Namibia, Botswana. And it was kind of this, it was beautiful. It was amazing. And also we studied the profound inequalities of apartheid and development of children and poverty and global health inequalities when it comes to medicine and lots of different international health programs and the global, you know, economic situations, you know, that impact these countries. And um, it was a very eye-opening trip that also brought about what I now know is uh, the term, what's it called? Now I'm forgetting. Every person uses it now. Deconstruction. That's what it is. That was my my deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I decided to do was not go to seminary immediately after undergrad, but to take some time and to do mission, uh, which had been life-giving to me in the past. So I became a young adult missionary with the United Methodist Church. At the time, uh, the program was called the Mission Intern Program. It's now the Global Mission Fellows Program. You may have promoted it, Sarah, when you were a pastor. I sure did. I sure did. Alumni right here. Was it it like Mission Year was one of them part of it? Um, That's a different program. But basically, now it is you spend two years in a mission context, either inside the United States or outside of your home country. Uh, depending on where you are in the Same, world. Same, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, really hard, though. Uh, <laughs> don't recommend it unless you're uh, willing to, yeah, really um, go where you don't know and never be the same, as the hymn says. Oh, Yeah, okay. there you go. Nice. At the time, my program was a year and a half outside of your home country, a year and a half inside of your home country as far as service so I actually ended up going back to South Africa. And okay. yeah, so that was pretty exciting. I was pretty happy that I, you know, had some grasp of the culture and like could speak a few words in a couple of different languages. And then I went to Miami, Florida, which was amazing and also a good kind of landing space. It, a context that's very, both of those are in some ways very different from South Carolina, but also in some ways you could find the through lines. So it was very fascinating. I lived in Miami for a while Justin. as well. So we're just we just keep crossing paths. Wow. I can't believe we missed this. I'm so sad that we weren't friends yeah. before now. Yeah. Well, we are now. We can swap stories and uh, the best places to get, you know, cafecita in Miami and yeah. And I am someone who constantly just thinks going to Miami. <laughs> it, it is no? you know, it's it that's kind of like the Party in the USA song right. for Los Angeles, you know, like Na- everyone is ashamed of it, but right. also every time you go, you play it. Yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's the way it is. Yeah. 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 There's so many Miami so songs you're... though. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's Were you yeah. just out of interest in South Africa? Were you at all working with uh, Peter Story? All the Duke people. Story? Yes. Um, so actually I worked at Seth Mulcatini Methodist Seminary, which he went back to South Africa oh, yeah. to fundraise for. Um, and then yes. was the president for. So yeah, I um, we can talk more about that period of my life at another time. But yeah, so I do know Peter's story. I know lots of people that you know from from Duke. Actually, we could talk about that another time. But uh, Peter Grasso was my boss, and yeah, I learned a lot about the Methodist Church of Southern Africa. I also loved that space because I was with seminarians who were wrestling with their own calls and the pieces that they were ashamed about with their own historical contexts. And so inarguably one of the most diverse places in Southern Africa, which was the seminary, because uh, it had people from six different countries and you know close to a dozen languages represented. This was a place where we could really wrestle with, you know, what does it mean to be in the world, but not of it? What does it mean to wrestle with Christ and culture? How do I, as this white American, wrestle with my own privileges as other people in their own context do that for themselves and also look at what needs to be dismantled in in all of our cultures 
So just like super light, not doing a lot of heavy thinking. Not at all. No, not just at all. Like, look, I'm not going to go straight into ministry. I'm, I'm going through a little bit of like a faith shift. So I think I'll just, I'm just going to jump all the way into the fire and just question it all. Yeah. But in a space mm-hmm. where like, it's going to be right in my face. We'll talk about that more. But yeah, that's normally my like thing is like, okay, I need a profound sort of world shift. So let me go ahead and do this thing that I know is probably going to be very painful, but also very beneficial in the long run. I love it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that was South Africa. Um, so I, I worked as a, a field education coordinator, uh, helping students connect with contextual education placement sites, basically with orphanages and other nonprofits and government-run organizations that worked with people who had profound mental health uh, issues or different kinds of developmental disabilities or people who were incarcerated. And so it was a way to kind of look at the different cookie jars of ministry, if you will, and explore that with other people. And then when I went back to Miami, Florida, as I adjusted to U.S. culture again and a lot of grief and sadness from missing people that I loved in South Africa, um, I was a financial coach, which I had no experience in at all. And so here I was learning how to pull credit reports and help people settle debt collections and also file taxes. You were the second pastor we have talked to who did that. That's so funny. Oh, who's the other one? The guy from Ohio. He was awesome. Adam? I am talking about names today. Never mind. Anyway. I'm going mm-hmm. to look it up. Yeah. I'm going to remember because he's up. amazing. Yeah, I would love he's that. part of our group. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. yeah, that's what he does now. He does basically does like financial care for folks who are, you know, learning about none of us, none of us learned about finances, but learning, uh, you know, are less privileged maybe and coming into learning the system. So yeah, sorry, I did not mean to interrupt. No, love it. No, this is all good. So yeah, I um, loved that. And I mean, you know, if I ever need another career shift, I feel like working with Asset limited, income constrained, but employed people could be really cool. Um, And there's not really a lot of programs Mm -hmm. like that in South Carolina. In case you were wondering, I'm somebody who feels deeply um, called to being in South Carolina. That's not something that everybody feels called to, but that is something (laughs) that we'll get into, I'm sure. Um, And yeah, so I loved Miami. It was great. It was a party. It was, you know, I, I say it was a party. I am also that college student who you know, like left in the middle of football games to go and actually study, not the party, not to do anything else. But like, also <laughs> oh, Furman, didn't have, Furman didn't have good football. So like, that was another thing too. But yeah, but it was just like a, it was a time of, yeah, like being in a context and, you know, basking in a way of life, you know, and a, a rhythm of life that I would, I, I, I didn't think I would ever have another chance to do it, you know, it, uh, you know, as an adult. So I'm really glad I got to, to be in that space. And to uh, another potential friend of this podcast, Audrey Warren was in my context at that time. I worked at a church that, or a nonprofit that met in her church and worked in her church. And so, oh, that's cool. yeah, it was very fun. Um, and I love, guys, we're name dropping, but fear not. You can look these people up. They are just, you know, they're the Beyonce. They're the real world. people. Yeah. We real promise. people, yeah. Yeah. yes. Fantastic. Um, so apologies to those who don't know a lot of Duke people. I didn't go to Duke. I'm actually about to say that I went to Emory. So, you know, if if, if we're, you know, in a Jets and a Sharks place, I'm sorry. I don't know if you want to be the Jets or if I, you know, want to be the Jets. I think but it's fine. I then went to Emory for seminary and I focused on prison chaplaincy and for my contextual education and also conflict transformation. And that oh. is um <laughs> again just light. Hillary's just like, look, I just skimmed the surface, bitches. I'm just here for the easy. I'm here for the <laughs> by the way, it hit me. It's Brandon Dulaney. You're welcome. Brandon Dulaney. Okay. I don't I yeah. will have to look you, them up. His episode right. is really great. All right. And that is cool. the yeah, you, you is, did not go easy at no, all. No, never on any Hillary. of these. Like prison chaplain, that's that's hardcore. Well, Con- conflict transformation yeah. like no one wants to do that no. but they I'm need proud. to yeah i'm not saying i'm any good at it but i like it and who can't who could be great like point. but it's good that you yeah like but that's that's really that's that's what i would say 
is badass. Thank you. Um, and I will say that I think the two, it actually occurs to me now as I'm talking to y'all about this, it's kind of a melding of the two things that I did when I was working as a missionary with the Methodist Church. The conflict transformation piece is from South Africa, which underwent its own truth and reconciliation process in the 1990s mm -hmm. when Nelson Mandela was released and that was led by Desmond Tutu. Definitely look it up if you're not connected to that part of history. It is it is difficult to read at times, but it is worthwhile and something that we Absolutely. certainly should replicate here in lots of different contexts. So that's one, one reason that I studied those things. The second thing that I studied was prison chaplaincy based out of the fact that I was a, a financial coach for somebody who was a returning citizen when I was in Miami. And so that uh, watching him interact with all of these different social systems and, you know, need to figure out a way to pay for tech school, but also pay for housing. And thankfully, he didn't have to worry about housing, but, you know, he had to rely on everybody else to get him to school or get him to jobs. And he was limited in the kinds of jobs he could get because of his criminal record. And there, you know, uh, at the time wasn't any kind of... Uh, you know, box banned, you know, the box that says I am somebody who has a, a criminal record and a felony. And so I became really interested in working with people who are, you know, impacted by carceral systems. Can you, can you say what you referred to him as? Because I think that's a really neat turn of phrase. Yeah. Um, as he was re-entering, you said he is a re- say it again. Yeah. Returning citizen. Returning citizen. Mm-hmm. That just, I'm getting goosebumps yeah. as a description for someone who is coming out of the being incarcerated. Yeah, no, it's, um, have you ever heard that term, Justin? I, I think I've heard it, but I hadn't like caught on that it was like, it, yeah, it kind of glanced off me. It but. feels like it's so connecting. Like it, it's, we can all relate to, to, I don't know, it seems so different than like, uh, formerly incarcerated mm -hmm. or ex-con. Yeah, ex yeah. Or ex <laughs> yeah, which is also what we refer to as confirmands in some church circles. So, which sometimes feels appropriate. Oh, former confirmands. Yeah, Perfect. yeah. That's I don't use mm -hmm. that term anymore. Um, again, because it sounds like ex-cons. But returning citizens. Yes, it is a term that conveys, you know, a desire to reconnect people to our society. And I think we would be better if we conceived of our prison systems differently, A, but also if we made a bigger effort to help people return to society, because prison is profoundly traumatizing. If you want more information on that, I commend you to read the book Until We Reckon by Danielle Sered. Ooh. Yeah, fantastic book. So, so good. So while I was, and this is kind of what this era of being a, a you know prison chaplain with my seminary this is kind of what catapults me into the work that I do now while i was in seminary there was a woman on george's death row a woman named kelly gissendanner who was incarcerated for 18 years and then you know was on death row for conspiring to kill her husband it's a murder for hire charge which is a death penalty offense in lots of places, including Georgia. And while she was on death row, she sobered up, she became a Christian, she reconciled with her children, and her, you know, the, the murder victim in her case was her husband. Uh, she conspired with her boyfriend to kill him, and it was her boyfriend who actually murdered her husband. And so a lot of work needed to be done, you know, between her and her children. But she reached out to them and she was willing to do it. And and they were willing to listen, which wow. doesn't happen, right? That That is not always a guarantee, but mm -hmm. it's a phenomenal story. And she also became somebody who took theology courses through Candler School of Theology and through this uh, theology education program that they had at Lee Arendale Women's Prison, where she was housed for a long time. And she learned about Jürgen Moltmann's theology. Jürgen Moltmann, of course, is the really famous systematic theologian who focused on theology of hope and became friends with him. So pretty amazing also. And then- By the way, guys, those yeah. of you who aren't theology nerds, like some of us, don't feel bad for not knowing. Yeah, I'm sorry that I'm name dropping all these things. When not I, at all. I'm just saying, 
I, I just know that there are people out there like, who? Yeah. With the what? Totally fair. Yeah. Look him up. I think the reaction to Jürgen Moltmann is either like, ooh, ooh. like, oh, wow. Like, or like, who is this person? I don't know that anyone like... There's no neutral on Moltmann. Moltmann. I, I would Moltmann. agree. There's nobody who's like, oh, yeah, no, like, it's fine. No. Um, yeah, he's all right. Yeah, whatever, you know, I've read a few of his books, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, there we are. But the thing I find most impactful is she herself became a kind of theologian and trusted theological resource at Lee Arendelle Women's Prison, where she was housed. So much so, and a kind of caregiver too, so much so that people who were experiencing thoughts of self-harm, she would, basically the corrections officers would take those people who were a danger to themselves, and they would put them next to Kelly's cell, and she would counsel them through the vents of her cell. It gives me goosebumps every mm. time I think about that. Because prison is loud, right? Oh. Like, and And how amazing to be able to like preach life to somebody you know in in a way that is you know like prison is such a hard place and it is made to make you feel so isolated and and even through all that isolation here is somebody who is on death row who is preaching life and saying to somebody you are going to live and god has plans for you and god is going to get you through this Mm. that's when I that's when I did you notice I just like became a Christian again right like yeah. I'm just like leaning in like maybe that's it that's I I like incarcerated Jesus <laughs> like mm-hmm. if there's like like somebody who is willing to lay down on the floor when you have no hope yourself mm. in in what we would understand is like hope and prosperity and all this kind of stuff yeah yeah it's beautiful yeah Unfortunately, this is not a happy ending story because in spite of all of those things, in spite of even a former warden's word that, yes, I believe we can get you clemency, in spite of a global effort to try and stop her execution, Kelly was still executed in September of Mm. 2015. And that was my first Mm. month and a half of seminary was also participating in her clemency campaign. And this was, oh, gosh, yeah, it was not great. It was a really hard time for so many people. And this clemency campaign, you know, began nine months before I even, you know, before, before her execution even happened. And the thing that I, I keep thinking about with Kelly and, and up until this moment, so I'm, I'm from South Carolina, right? I'm from the state where Dylan Roof, you know, is, is from, and also, committed atrocious, awful acts of violence against uh, congregants at Mother Emanuel and murdered nine people. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, coming into seminary, I was really wrestling with how do I go back to South Carolina as a pastor? And how how do we, Mm -hmm. you know, and what do I even think about the death penalty? And how do I respond to this violence? And the thing about Kelly that was particularly I don't know, made me think a lot was she, she resembled some people in my own life who uh, I think in, in the way that I experienced them present the way that Kelly may have, you know, been perceived or may have been experienced before she became a Christian, before she was incarcerated and put on death row. And the thing that I really was so upset about was, you know, here are all these people who are fighting for her and also the death penalty is so racist and so there's this person who's a white woman who's getting all of this attention and care and also like how unfair it is profoundly that she gets to change and the people that I love are not changing and there was this distinct moment in wrestling with what I thought about the death penalty and what I thought about Kelly's case where I do remember kind of a still small voice somewhere, wherever it was, finally helping me into a space of how wonderful it is that this person is not beyond redemption, how wonderful it is that this person is not more, or is, is not defined by the things that, the worst things that she's done, how wonderful it is that there is always the chance that we can change. And yeah, what if... What if John Wesley's words really are true, you know, and at the end of life, 
best of all, God is with us, right? Best of all, mm-hmm. we we have that chance. And maybe at the end of all things, we can still experience redemption and sanctification and justification and rejuvenation and all those things or regeneration, whatever those Wesleyan things are that, that Methodist. You know, all the, all the shuns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what if we can just shun it up? Just shun it all up. Yes, there we are. And <laughs> I remember taking my, like, doing my, uh, like, when we were, so Methodists love a shun. We just do. We do. And like as explaining the system, all that sort of stuff of like what we think redemption looks like. And I remember just being like, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to get like justification confused with sanctification confused with. And I made up some silly story to remember it all. And I can't remember it now, but it was ridiculous. So that I, it was like a surfing thing. Like if you're on the beach and you want to surf, then you're in this whatever. And that's so California, then, you, a surfing metaphor. I like, that. I know. And then I said it to the board and they're like, that's a great way of explaining it. What I didn't say to them was it was so I could understand. It right, I, right. I had a really difficult, feel, you know, theology course. Uh, Jeffrey Wainwright did not help me figure oh, out how to write that. No, so. that sounds, yeah, nope, nope, nope. Yeah. Woof. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Yeah. So that's kind of how I became anti-death penalty. And that proceeds to uh, influence the rest of my time in seminary. I get connected with Georgians for alternatives to the death penalty. I show up to vigils. I actually help design some of the vigils when I'm in my third year of seminary. And it continues to keep me grounded in the work of prison chaplaincy at Arendelle Women's Prison. I go back and I teach theology courses to people who are incarcerated. I Again, just light. light yeah, just light. Just yeah, the- yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, fun fact, uh, an aside for our listeners, being at this women's prison was actually one of the first places where I heard people use, you know, preferred pronouns. So like, that was super cool. Yeah, no, for real. Like, I I mean, people like don't think about that. But I mean, really, and truly before that became in vogue with some circles, that was actually the first place where I learned like, wow, like, it's, you know, you should ask for people's pronouns and see how people, you know, react with you. Yeah. So that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, So all that to say prisons are can be places of some amazing like there's so many people who are looking for all kinds of liberation in prison which i'll get to uh with some of the work that i currently do brief interlude though um back on my ministry journey (laughs) so i'm 28 at this point and i graduate from seminary and i go into the local church and i am placed in a very small rural community in south carolina and I get ordained in that community. And there are pros and cons, you know, to being in a small rural context. It helps you learn which fights are worth fighting. It also helps you figure out how to community organize strategically. It helps you try out some new ideas that maybe won't fly in bigger spaces. And I love I'm now in a place where I can say I loved a lot of the ways that I was able to do everything, even if it felt really isolating and it felt like a lot. But like, for example, I learned how to file quick claim deeds because my churches were older than the counties that they were in. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, not not something they teach you. In fact, I actually sent that case study to my my Methodist you know, studies and polity teacher, I was like, here's what you do with the church, you know, like, here, tell this, give this to your students. Well, and, and let's be honest, most of what they teach you in undergrad and seminary is not what you do. It's true. As a pastor. No, it's fair. And like, yeah. I had three or four theology classes, three or four exegetical classes, like three or four kind of like, you know, theoretical classes, and maybe one. Mm-hmm or two practical ministry classes and they were just kind of general, like how to lead a board meeting kind of things. They weren't like, like I honestly think that you should probably have a class in like, like how to swing a hammer. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm actually how to like do these like home ec for pastors. I don't know what you would call it, but if I was designing a ministry degree, like I would say a good third of it would just be very nuts and bolts. Like, all right, you you think you're going to go to this very slick place, but chances are you're going to be leading a board full of like kind of older people that don't think like you and maybe they don't care about the things that you do. Um, And how do you make them care about important things? You know, and how do you, how do you, and then guess what? There's going to be a toilet one Sunday morning that is going to clog. So do you know how to plunge a toilet? Yes. Right when you need it. Right. Yes. Right when someone needs it. And it's, yes. And that's a big thing. It's like fixing things, obviously with our hands. That's Mm -hmm. a big thing. But it's also, don't you think like that practical thing of like, I had all this, like, I'm imagining you coming out of seminary and like, I remember coming out of seminary and just being like, well, can't wait to share this knowledge. Like I've got some things. People are really going to want things. Nobody wants the things. And you, you realize like you're going through all of this. Like you said, you started the process of like letting go of some pretty big theologies early on in seminary. Mm -hmm. So now you're coming out like, I can't just give you the Jesus loves you and that's enough thing every week and like be good to your neighbor which is a good thing absolutely but like you're you're questioning who a neighbor is yeah. you're questioning what grace actually is you're you're not going to be able to give them like if someone <laughs> you you're not going to give them like the like well we'll let god figure that out you know you've got you've got all this background and history of you've seen south africa you've seen the inside of prisons you've seen things that these people who are theoretically just talking about, well, I don't believe, I believe in the death penalty or I believe in this. And you're like, really? Why? You've, you've struggled and wrestled with it, but you're also, these are the people you've been tasked to care for. Mm-hmm. And then you're supposed to lead a meeting when no one's taught us how to lead a meeting. Yeah. Right? Like I want to teach, I, wa- I don't want to teach uh, preaching. I love preaching. I want to teach, like, I want to teach executives how to write a good sermon, mm-hmm. but I want to teach pastors how to lead a good meeting. Yeah. And they're not the same. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> In fact, they can't be done the same. And so I think, you know, I'm imagining you in this small context, trying to figure out how to use the big notions and not putting down anyone who lives in a rural setting or is in a tiny church, because that's beautiful and wonderful work. But there is, how do I take something that may feel a little vague, may feel a little big, but like you've experienced? Yeah. And and I'm part of it. Yeah, and I think that they were probably looking for, I don't know, big stories, a lot more big stories than they got. And, you know, look, I only lived in, you know, so much of living in other spaces is about, like, on my Saturdays, I walk to the nice little market where I get homemade yogurt and some chicken and I make my dinner and I read a book because this is the first time I've gotten a chance to read since graduating college. And so, yeah, like I was a great little hermit and that was, you know, you just sort of live life, right? Like not everything is exciting and beautiful and wonderful when you live in places that are quote unquote exotic from your, you know, place of origin. Right. So I, you know, I don't have as many life altering stories. I do have many, you know, we all have, life-altering stories where our worldview just shifts and God's presence is revealed and our neighbors' identities are revealed in different ways, right? But I, you know, and and I think often, and, and this podcast has sometimes spoken to this, we sometimes have to brand ourselves as I'm so amazing and I could solve all your problems in, in ministry mm-hmm. context, especially when we're trying to get ordained. And, you know, that's not fair, right? But I also think that I was able to offer them a, an alternate view of younger people, right? I showed up and, mm-hmm. okay. um, you know, mm-hmm. to these, fo- you know, places where mostly, you know, old, older folks gathered for these community singings, right? And I learned the value of what it means to preach well at a funeral and to comfort people well at a funeral, particularly when when somebody has been estranged from that community for a long time. And so the importance of ritual and yeah, just helping, you know, helping younger folks who are still connected to those, you know, to these congregations, like what does it mean to cultivate ritual? And I learned to, you know, grow gardens. And that was something I didn't have a lot of experience growing up in suburban South Carolina. And I learned how to fix my water pump 
and I learned a little bit about electricity so that now I can, you know, I spent the last weekend changing out my two-pronged outlets into three-pronged outlets. And I know how to do that now because I was in a rural context and, you know, my church members came and fixed things. And I said, hey, can I come along? Uh, I caught snakes that were, you know, on my front porch and (laughs) weren't leaving. And I grew up in an outdoorsy family. I have uh, you know, experience as a hunter, and that's part of my practice of conservation. And um, oh I'm, my I'm looking at your face now, and you're like, wait, this is another, on- you know, layer of onion that has just been revealed uh, on this podcast. Yes, um, actually, uh, the thing that I'm really excited about from that that placement in ministry is my ordination project was a gun buyback program and it scared my people to death, but we got through it and I collected 20 guns in this very rural County in South Carolina. And the pitch was, you know, not just violence prevention, but suicide prevention. Uh, Because South Carolina is one of the places that has an increase, you know, every, you know, self-harm rate increased during the pandemic, but South Carolina's was increasing during the, like before the pandemic and was the only state that was increasing before the pandemic in the Southeast. And yeah, that's something that's not talked about. No, enough. no. Um, with like buyback programs do prevent suicides. Yeah. Like, like a, in a, a lot of areas. A, a lot. And then that is something that people don't think about with gun ownership, right? Yeah. That's something we talk about but it is huge. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the, it's the biggest yeah, that's good contributor work. to, yeah, about half of all, you know, gun related deaths are suicides and that's wild. It's so wild. Right. So that was really important and really impactful. And it really showed my conference that, wow, you know, <laughs> this is a really cool project. And I had lots of other, you know, goals and, and things. And then the pandemic hit and killed everybody's sense of joy and yeah (laughs) that's one way to put it and and y'all have had people i'm sure talk about all this stuff so i don't need to get into how hard it was for everybody but particularly in 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 rural places uh with pastors who who could not get to you know to other people and had wild suspicion not not that let me rephrase that had 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 a lot of lack of trust because of so many yeah. things that were ping ponged on the news versus health experts versus what denominations were saying versus politicians. And I mean, it was just a mess. So it's at this point in the pandemic, early in the pandemic, I have free time because that's what happened when we were only supposed to do that for two weeks. And I emailed a law firm that was connected to anti-death penalty work in South Carolina. They're called Justice 360, and if you're listening in South Carolina or you're familiar with South Carolina, go ahead and look them up on the internet. Again, that's Justice 360. And I said, hey, how you doing? My name's Hillary. I'm a pastor, and I I was involved in Georgia with anti-death penalty things, and I was curious, do you all have a pen pal program? Do you need somebody to be a chaplain? I am available. I'm around. I have experience. And they say... Uh, we don't need you uh, and we don't have a pen pal program, but thanks for letting us know. We'll call you if we do need you. And then several months oh, later, no. uh, several months later, I, I did get a phone call from a lawyer who said, we actually do need your expertise. There's somebody who has kind of exhausted all of his theological tools. He has done all the Bible Institute and Bible college things that are available to him through mail. And it's possible that he may receive an execution date. Would you be willing to connect with him? And I say, yes. Mm. And so for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to call this person Lance. Lance still is somebody who is on death row. And so I'm not here to get into any case specifics. So we're going to call him Lance. So Lance is somebody who is a deeply faith-filled person. Maybe wasn't always in every aspect or every point of his life, but has been able to share with me some moments where he felt God's presence in his life. And so we we share lots of things in common um, as far as how we have have talked about God and thought about God and continue to talk and think about God. And Lance actually became the person that I would 
rant to during the pandemic when I just felt like I couldn't win and I didn't feel like people could trust me. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, he was, it's ironic, right? This person who's on death row is, you know, this confidant for, <laughs> for somebody who's outside. And I'm really somehow that seems okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's how it is. And so yeah, he was able to hold that space for me. And I remain really grateful for that for that service and that gift. I, um, after kind of that first year of the pandemic, I decided to withdraw from local parish ministry. I felt pretty sad and just like I couldn't be myself. And there are lots of different reasons for that. I'm not going to get into some of those reasons on this podcast uh, to be continued for another podcast. How's that? There you go. When you're ready to talk about it. There we go. But so I, I decided to do a year of uh, clinical pastoral education residency. So that was fun. Like I said, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fryer, <laughs> that's what I do. And while I was doing my clinical pastoral education, I continued to be in connection with, with Lance. Now, right before I left my church jobs, I, Lance got an execution date and that was a really scary mm -hmm. thing. And here's the thing about like most of the theology that people share in prison at its best. And this is what I learned in seminary at its best. Like a lot of people go into prisons and they give people Bible verses as a way to cope with life's troubles. And I have no problems with that. I think that that can actually be really helpful in, in many circumstances. At its worst, though, a lot of theological education is people coming in and, you know, promoting racist, sexist, Christian conspiracy theory driven, homophobic, like garbage. And, you know, and also at the same time trying to you know, uh, claim, you know, turn people Christian, right? So that you have more feathers in your cap of, you know, evangelism, if you will. And so it's really important to have liberative theology. And sometimes the only way that that gets through in prisons is through pen pal programs and through letters and, you know, and eventually phone calls if, if those connections continue. But that's how my relationship was with Lance. And Lance had already been doing a lot of I think liberative Christian interpretive practice. And, and that was something that I was surprised to experience and discover. I think I had thought about him in, in one certain way with a certain kind of theology, but then he got his execution date. Hmm. And hmm. so all of a sudden I was thrust into this space where there were all these activists, you know, including Shane Claiborne, and I'm of the age where, like, Shane Claiborne was, like, the man and, like, the person you wanted to emulate, and everybody wanted to be in those intentional communities, and here I was all of a sudden with his phone number in my phone, and that was really exciting, mm -hmm. so. And you were like, look, I am going to start sewing my own clothes. Basically. I'm going to start... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's the thing I remember about Shane. <laughs> that I also remember all the amazing things he did. Right? Too, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I only had, remember that he sewed his own clothes. That's all. No, I know. I, having hung out with friends of his a lot uh, during seminary, he I was believe super that. Involved in that he, I, I was, I was like, that dude is not a bad tailor. If I'm honest, no, he's not. I really love how like loose fitting that they look, but also like still like, you know, they're not going to fall off your body. Like, yeah, shout out. If you're going to change the world and end uh, capital punishment. Why, why not do so in a pair of loose fitting linen pants? Precisely. You know? There we are. Comfy screams beach vibes. Yeah. I want to go to the beach mm -hmm. after I end the death penalty. That sounds great. Amazing. So in any case, I, how do I say this? Basically, one night about within the week that Lance is scheduled to be executed. Um, and Lance mm -hmm. and I had grown to be pretty close at this point. We had been connected for about a year and, you know, people asked, what's it like to be connected to somebody on death row? And it's kind of like being connected to any other person, really. You know, when we wrote each mm -hmm. other letters, we would talk about our families, our friends, our memories growing up. We talk about our regrets. We talk about, you know, the things that are on TV, sports, sports is a big thing um, on death row, as you might imagine. Lots of feelings about, 
Clemson Tiger football, um, and I'm a Gamecock. And so, uh, you know, I, I also have my own personal feelings. Again, like, you can judge me. That's fine. That's okay. You know, but sometimes you don't have a choice in the fandoms that, that you receive or inherit. This is this is one of my, uh, my the things about me that, that I have to share, you know, and be honest and open and vulnerable with you about. So there we yeah, are. Well, I, that's fair. Yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. I receive your confession. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Me as well. There we go. So anyway, all that to say, back to my very serious story. So Lance and I are talking, and this is a really heavy moment, obviously. And yeah. he mm. says, you know, Pastor Hillary, I am really scared. I do mm. not want to die. I, I know that I deserve to die for what I've done. But I also want to live. And I believe that God could use me. Um, Mm. and tonight I have been praying for a word from God and I flipped my Bible open, you know, to see what, you know, what, what there was for me. And so, you know, he did the thing that we all do, right. When we're looking for a a word desperately, right. Flipped his Bible open at random and Lance sees Ecclesiastes chapter one, right. Which is the vanity of vanities, all is, you know, vanity, Mm -hmm. you know nothing matters period you know all of life is meaningless all that stuff um we are dust in the wind doesn't completely say all of those things but you get the picture yeah (laughs) so lance you know reads the sections that are meaningful to him in this moment and and he pauses and says pastor hillary you know i believe that you know this scripture is right you know we are just, you know, uh, all of life is is vanity, which is why we need to cling to God and to God's word, because mm. God's word is all that matters. And I believe that I can be useful. I believe that I can, sh- I want to live because I believe that I can share God's word in a meaningful way, in a way that Ugh. will bring other people to God, right? And that's all that matters, right? And so... I'm pretty breathless as I hear all of this, right? Because yeah. what Lance is doing is is kind of taking scripture and using it as this this tool, you know, for moral leadership under constraint. Uh, which is a, a fancy way of saying he sees this system that he cannot fix and that is going to take some time and a lot of effort to fix in South Carolina. We still have the death penalty and we are the eighth largest executing state in the country. Um, We have executed 282 people in our history and 74% of those people are African-American men. And Mm -hmm. so uh, we have a deeply problematic history. And and also many of those people are, uh, I think all of those people are poor, working class. There are no rich people who get sentenced to death. Alec Murdoch is you know one such case i don't know if y'all been following that case it has been the rage to follow in south carolina for the last several years oh, I bet. yeah it was wild totally wild. and i i will admit to avidly following it yeah see there we are you know other people who were sentenced to death people who had profound mental illness profound intellectual disabilities could not get quality legal education could not communicate well with the lawyers who may have been able to help them, even if they were moderately fine or, or well, you know, or, or trained, you know, in some cases, not all cases, certainly, but basically Lance is, is, is saying and taking his Bible and using it as a tool to resist the system and saying, okay, fine. My life is, meaningless to the world okay cool you can strap me to the electric chair you can load up the firing squad we have a firing squad in south carolina just so you know mm-hmm. um oh, you know, that's so upsetting get ready the the um the syringes um but i know that my life matters to god my life is meaningful to god and that's all that matters right so in a way lance is taking this profoundly hopeless passage and turning it for hope and that is not what that passage is meant for that passage Mm -hmm. is meant to help people feel out the depths of their depression in all of its fullness Mm -hmm. it is not meant to have people Mm -hmm. you know say cheer you know like you know get on the sunny side of things here you go here's reasons why you should be hopeful 
certainly that can be a byproduct once you have felt all of your depression and all of the suffering. But but here he was saying that, yeah, um, the word gives me hope. And so mm-hmm. my relationship with Lance has changed, you know, and I, you know, right, I'm a seminary graduate. I care about scripture. Um, I take scripture seriously. Um, but he has helped me, I think, take it even more seriously, which. I mean, you are talking yeah. to a seminary grad who has a podcast called Go Home Bible, You're Drunk. So I'm thinking oh. not all seminary grads mm-hmm. take scripture seriously. Oh, man. Jeez. I feel That's like. A- Uh, (laughs) you would like that podcast I think Hillary but yes there there is this sense like I I think I know what the scripture is about and then you encounter someone who uses it as a blanket when you see it as like a weapon yeah yeah in that way Mm -hmm. right like yeah it's an interesting like doesn't that piss you off and he's like no it holds me Mm. (laughs) yeah yeah a a similar thing too right like so yeah um my in in the middle of my residency, I realized that I really love this work, and there was an opportunity to do it full time. And so, that is what I do full time now. I do anti death penalty work, and I am the executive director of South Carolinians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. And our job is to abolish the death penalty and catalyze criminal justice reform. We seek first and foremost to rehumanize the people who are on death row, to mobilize people uh, against the death penalty by educating them about the death penalties past and present in South Carolina. Once we've mobilized people, we help them advocate with power holders and stakeholders for death penalty abolition and also reinvestment into life-giving and effective alternatives for violence prevention. And then we help restore people who are system impacted. Uh, So murder victim family members, uh, death row family members, death row survivors, and we help them find a place of healing and stability through connection to different service providers and also through making opportunities available for them to tell their stories, which is integral to the therapeutic process and to healing and transforming hurt. And that feeds right back into the rehumanizing piece too. So Hillary, this is all such amazing work. And I know that you know, you, you kind of began with, I kind of deconstructed, but it sounds like you sort of, you have been adjacent to this work your whole, yeah, your whole career, or even like your, since you were a kid, like you were kind of primed for this work, whether you were swinging a hammer or like just being present to people in this way. So grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Where do you feel like you've kind of landed with things? I mean, Lance, wh- where is that story now? And kind of as you do this work that you, by the way, you have the vision statement, like like memorized. I wish half my staff that at the coffee company I work at would just remember one of our values. So ah. I'm impressed with all of yours. Um, <laughs> Thank what, you. what about like, yeah, how do you feel like you're, yeah, like what do you think about as you're dealing with your own faith questions, you're in relationship with Lance, uh, your, you know, a friendship or whatever. I don't even know what you would call that. Like, how do you feel? Yeah, share a little bit of that. Yeah, actually, Lance called me. I should have told him I was going to be talking about him today. Uh, He (laughs) called me today just to check up on me and see how I was doing. Um, I have been, uh, I just bought a house and I have been filling him in on the different repairs that I'm doing. And uh, (laughs) I filled him in on the fact that uh, I canceled the the natural gas payment and an account that I had and then promptly realized when there were cold showers that, oh, no, the gas was heating the water. And so that was a fun (laughs) moment where he was like, oh, that's silly. Um, You know, uh, we uh, actually I just shared with him. I don't know. I've I've given him some resources. He actually helps me write some sermons from time to time whenever I go and and speak to churches um, because and I've actually given him some exegetical exercises too. So that's been really fun. Stop it. No, for real. Like prison exegesis is amazing. You should definitely like, mm-hmm. um, any way that you can oh, participate, like do it. Yeah. So like, I, um, I'm going to have to, I need to come up with, you know, what verses I want to preach on in the future so that we can uh, write a sermon together. 
And um, I also was, I don't know, for some reason I started talking to him about the Enneagram today. And I was like, have you heard about the Enneagram? And he's like, no, what's that? I was like, oh, I think you're going to like it. I'm going to send you this book by Richard Rohr. (laughs) So we're going to see how it, how it goes. Um, He's got a couple of people who can help him read and understand it. Um, But he really, what is the resource that he really likes. Yeah, like we we talk about all sorts of faith things. We talk about, you know, just kind of everyday life things. And he helps me be reminded of the wonder and the glory around God. I feel Mm. pretty cynical about a lot of things. Um, uh, Part of the reason that I'm not in local parish ministry is because of the great distraction that is the UMC focus on human sexuality, right? And like, you know, who can and cannot be part of the, you know, the polity. Like, I'm just sick of this thing. And I'll re-engage when people are, are ready to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. But for right now. And I love how you just say something so deep, like, meh. Yeah. Like I, I say, I'm ready to go get a sandwich. You yeah. say, whenever people are willing to live up to that big thing, I'll hop right in. Oh, man. I, um, I, I learned in, in CPE that, like, you can choose to pick a fight. You can choose to pick a fight, but not everything has to be a fight. And there are Mm -hmm. some things that you might just not want to fight about and figure out ways that you can not preserve relationships, right? Because preserving relationships with people who are harmful, that's not good. Mm -hmm. It says any conflict person and any therapist, right? But there are ways that you can leverage situations where you haven't picked a fight and where you know that you could have picked a fight and everybody else knows that you could have picked a fight and you can grow something instead of tear something down and that is something that I've really appreciated about conflict transformation work is what can we grow what can come from these ashes how can we do something new because if we're just focused on destroying a thing, then what are we going to put in its place when it's gone? That's what I want my organization to do, is once we've ended the death penalty, I want us desperately to focus on ways that we can prevent violence or, or meet people in the middle who have enacted violence, right? I, I want to figure out what are ways that we can restore people to humanity to their humanity help people feel their own emotions help people experience the emotions of other people that they've harmed and then vow to never harm another person ever again what are ways that we can help victims and survivors of violence not be afraid of the dark or not be afraid of every every relationship that they have in their lives Uh, what can we do to empower them and help them to know that they are more than the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Yeah. Well, Hillary, I just have to say, you know, before we close out here, I am just a glad that you exist in the world. Someone who takes this work so seriously, seriously. I think a lot of folks, you know, we put, pay great lip service to saying, I don't believe in the death penalty or I, and again, we probably haven't done the work to figure out why that is just like, it seems like, or we do agree with it, whatever it might be. And I am just glad that there's someone out there who is kind of had done the work and is willing to stand up for that. And so I'm super grateful for you and yeah. for your work. I would love to know how can people get in touch with your work? How can people find out more about the work that you're doing? Yeah. And learn more if you're willing to share just as a closing thing, because I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Yeah. You can find us on all the social medias at SCA Death Penalty. We're on Facebook, uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram. We also have a LinkedIn, fun fact. I didn't know that you could have a LinkedIn profile. And then I had an intern who was like, you actually need a LinkedIn profile. And I was like, really? And she said, yes. (laughs) Uh, So we're also on LinkedIn. You can find us at www.scadp.org. And we're starting to have monthly uh, info sessions about how you can get involved with my organization, whether you live in South Carolina or somewhere else. We have somebody as far as Nigeria who's helping with our website. Uh, We need people to help us create um, uh, an annual report. Uh, Hint, hint, if you're very good with those kinds of skills, we would love for your help. Um, But also- you can donate to us you know, financially if you want to help us abolish the death penalty and um, invest in other 
other things. Um, I mean, I really mean, I, I want to, you know, end in a space of hope where, like, doing anti-death penalty work actually, it kind of saved my life in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. And I know that as part of your story, that, like, it saved your reason for being in ministry, right? Yeah, no, for mm-hmm. sure. It, it gave me hope when I I didn't really have any. And, you know, when I was feeling super jaded about the institutional, you know, uh, ways that we, you know, enact our faith. Yeah. So I I encourage people to, you know, to ask themselves, what is the problem that you want to fix in the world? And let that guide Mm. you if you're feeling stuck, or if you're feeling particularly burnt out, like, ask yourself that question, because that's kind of how I landed here. Um, And I believe that it will guide other people too. Hillary, thank you so much uh just appreciate you you and justin can like talk about restaurants and all the (laughs) things that you share in common for different places but thank you for sharing your passion and for um yeah for being part of this and thank you to all of you for joining us it is always great to connect so thank you so much Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you are enjoying the conversations you hear on RevCovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in the RevCovery room on Discord. To access our Discord, please join our Patreon to become part of the RevCovery room community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and this helps us produce the show as well as gives you access to the community resources. Check it out at www.patreon.com revcovery. We know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are lots of ways to support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. Recovery Room is our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle, so you can find us there to keep the conversation going. Now on to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Friends, thank you for sticking around for another episode of Recovery and for staying all the way to the end to hear either the poem or the quote that we wanted to share with you. As always, Justin and I like to find a quote or a poem or even like music lyrics, just something that sort of speaks or gives a language that often is hard to find around what we've just experienced in the conversations we've had. I'm grateful to Hillary for bringing their message of, you know, what does it mean to be an advocate beyond the local church? And I was thinking about, uh, you know, quotes and things. And I found a bunch of quotes that obviously spoke about um, anti-death penalty and what it means to have alternatives to that. But for some reason, I kept going back to this quote. So I thought I would share it with you. And this is from Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, talk, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? So here it is. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. However you feel about the death penalty, I think one thing that we all share is this idea that retribution really doesn't bring peace and potentially moves us more towards chaos. And so I'm grateful for the work of Hillary, and I'm grateful for maybe the inspiration for those of us who feel like the local church isn't the place for us. Perhaps hearing Hillary's story, you'll find yourself drawn towards some sort of passion or meaning beyond the walls of the local church. Again, thank you for joining us here at Recovery, and we'll see you next week. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.